As uh, Brian mentioned, we start a series today called Counter Cultural Convictions. And uh, I understand, at least I think I do, that, that uh, this might create a little tension for some. Um, perhaps in the next seven weeks, you'll discover things that we think the Bible teaches that will make you uh, not like the Bible or maybe what God says about things. I don't know. I think some of you might respond to even the next seven weeks with a, like a warm blanket. Oh, I believe that too. I feel safe. I'm warm and fuzzy. And some of you will respond to it with self-righteousness. Tell them, Tim. Sick them. Tell them where they're wrong and, and you'll get all over that. Before we get into like the specifics of the countercultural aspect of God's love, I thought we would do ourselves a favor by doing some work to plow our own hearts before we actually get into like where it goes. Um, so let me do that by teasing up a couple of questions. Um, where are you being sanctified today? Do you know? Do you know where it is that God is confronting you or shaping you or forming you? Where are you wrong about what you believe or what you confess or the way you behave? Let me ask you this. Are you open to God having something to say about what you believe and what you do? And you would say, because I know you're smart people, the answer to that question is yes. Even if I feel no, I better say yes because I know where I am. Um, I, wanna, I want you to really ask that, that question of your own heart because I, I, I bet that some of what we're going to experience over the next seven weeks will be easier than others. But there's probably going to be some challenges along the way. And if you were here last week, I talked about an aspect of fearing the Lord that applies to what we're doing right now. We, we talked about one, one way to, to actually go about fearing the Lord is our reverence and our submission to what the Word of God says, like to submit to it. And I gave you a test um, to kind of know whether you do or not is where, whatever God's Word says, who is it that you adjust? Do you adjust you or do you adjust God? Because it is so super trendy to adjust God. I already live here, I already want this, I already love that, so God, get around my agenda. And that happens. So um, I want you to get ready to be adjusted, okay? That's my prayer in this whole series. And every one of us needs correction. That is the work of the word of God to us. It straightens what's bent. Yesterday I walked outside in the driveway and the wind was blowing really hard and it doesn't happen much in Gilbert and trees were moving and I thought about those young little sapling trees that are staked with those, you know, those large beams next to it and tying them off. If you didn't have those guide wires, the tree would tip over. So would we. Without the tether of God's truth and God's word, we blow in the wind. We just would get lost. And so the word of God is meant to straighten us, to keep us straight in the truth. <clears throat> Let me tell you where we're going for the next seven weeks. Today we're going to talk about love. And everyone go, oh, that's easy. Great. We'll see. See if you like this one. And, and it's specifically that God is the author of love and therefore he calls us people to reflect that love. Next week we talk about Jesus. The exclusivity of Jesus is the only way to the Father, the only way to salvation. The next week we get to talk about the authority of God's word, that we believe it's God-breathed. That's why it has the right to say uh, to us what it says, <clears throat> and it recalls us to obedience. The fourth week, we're going to talk about gender, that God made them male and female, specifically, 
and that gender is not a social construct in spite of what the world would say. It is a God construct, and since he invented it, he gets to decide what it is, and that might get a little crampy, and then the next week, we follow that up with a discussion on sex, the ethic of sex, the gift of sex, and the placement of sex in a male and female's life, so you get why this is going to get maybe a little bit more intense. Week six, salvation. And you would go, amen, everyone wants salvation. Well, we're going to talk about the fact that salvation belongs to God, not you. It's his property. That's going to be a good thing, I think. And then we finish with the vulnerable, looking at God's heart for the least of these. Um, and it's God who gets to define these things through his word, and he has a perfect understanding of what he means, and we don't. And so we're here to admit right away together, we are being, present tense, sanctified. God is refining our thoughts about himself and refining himself in, in the way we behave our lives and trying to get us lined up with the absolute truth of his word. We're being shaped into that. So please do not show up from week to week assuming you got this. That's the wrong demeanor to come to the word of God. You come and you say, God, where I don't have this, straighten me. Just a very submissive heart to that. Um, because we have a less than perfect understanding and a practice of what God thinks on these matters. Uh, let, let me do this. Before we get into it, um, let me present to you why I think I have to set it up like that. It seems like overkill, but I want to tell you some problems that we, we have when we come to the Word of God, and that should create a suspicion about our own understanding. One of them you will find kind of in, uh, in Paul's instructions to the Romans, in Romans chapter 12. There's something that he says there that we need to take it uh, for serious. Uh, if you know Romans lays out, first 11 chapters are the wonderful picture of how God saves sinners. It's just a beautiful uh, telling of the doctrines of grace in, in those first 11 chapters. And in chapter 12, he stops and says, therefore, and he's getting ready to, to, to write the implications of this God-owned salvation. Perhaps you remember these things where he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Everyone remember that. Okay. That's, that's the point of, I think, Paul's instructions there, that he is dealing with a people and a culture that have habits and tendencies, even though they're saved by grace people, they have grown up on conformed to the world, and they're still in it. And so what Paul is instructing the Romans is, you've got to renew your mind. You've got to renew your mind. If you're going to fight against your way with the world, then you have to renew your mind in the, in the truth of God's word. They needed to be conformed to Jesus because they were conformed to the world. Now, here's the point and here's the problem. You, my friend, are conformed to the world too. How's that feel? You just can't see it. And listen, I'm not saying that uh, you want to be. I'm not, I'm not accusing you. I'm not judging you as if somehow you want to be conformed to the world. I'm saying you can't see it. You don't know where it is. You just are. And that's the precision of the word of God. It gets into the minutiae. It gets into the specific ways in which you've embraced a false gospel, another way, another place of hope and peace. And it comes after that. There's a conformity to the world that we all, because of our culture, live in. And Paul's instructions to the Romans is our, his instruction to us. Do not be conformed, be transformed by you, renew over your mind. And that's what we fight for here. We desperately need God's word to expose it, to remove it and redeem it, right? Right? 
Okay. You want to know another problem we're dealing with before we even get into what God says about things? When it comes to absolute truth, God's word, people don't want it. I don't know what season of, of God's economy we're in. I have my own suspicions. But when Paul was addressing the young pastor named Timothy, he told him, he forewarned him of a time that he was going to do ministry in. He says, understand this, Tim, in the last days there will be difficult times for people will be lovers of themselves. Come on now. Right? Social media. Am I right? No judgment there. I, I, I'm not on social media. He goes on to describe it in like really detailed ways to talk about what it is to be lovers of yourself. And that is like a throwaway, sort of. Like we can just kind of point the fingers at the world and go, well, they love themselves. But this is the part that scares me. They have the appearance of godliness, but they deny its power. Always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. Who does that sound like now? Not them, but us. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's why when Paul goes after Timothy and what he does. Now, you got to know, Tim, I think, was a little bit timid uh, in his role. Like, what am I supposed to do? And Paul says, Tim, preach the word. Preach the word. Rebuke and correct and train in righteousness. And here's why. For a time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having ear, itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers who suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Code for lies. You want to hear lies. I'm not blaming you like your instinct. I'm just saying it's so much easier not to be confronted, not to be straightened. You know, when you got broken bones and the doctor pulls on it to straighten it, align the bone, no one wants the pain of that, but it, everybody wants a straight bone, right? And, and here's, what, here's what Paul tells Timothy. There's going to come a day when people do not want to hear God's truth. All they want to do is be comforted with lies. So here's what I don't know. Is that us? I don't know. Are you wanting sound doctrine? Do you invite correction? That's the only way I know how to determine whether we're in this season or not, but clearly it seems to be the demeanor of the church who really wants to hear from God. So I know this, and I say this every week, don't get tired of it. We need the Spirit of God to work that in us, right? All right, so let's ask him. God, help us today to listen with our hearts to what you have to say. God, where we are bent, where we are believing lies, where we want our ears tickled, confront us and draw us to your truth. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Just a couple qualifiers before we get into our text for today. Um, this is seven weeks on countercultural convictions, so this should be obvious. This isn't all of our convictions. We have more than seven, so don't, don't uh, misjudge that. But the second thing, just to qualify, is this is a series of convictions, not conclusions. In other words, uh, these subjects that we're going to deal with are going to kick up, I think, a whole bunch of questions specifically about your understanding, your story, people you love, things that you have to wrestle with in, in real practical ways. I just want you to know and probably understand that in 30, 35 minutes of preaching, I can't possibly go down every trail of your story or your illustration to answer your questions. But nevertheless, that's important to us. And most of this stuff will be discovered in conversation, like all things 
are applied that way. So we have kind of decided to present four nights where we can get together and do a Q&A on these things. Uh, this is kind of happening last minute, so just be cool with this. Tonight's the first one, and we're going to have it at Tempe at 6 p.m. Tyler's over there teaching this morning, and tonight he will lead a discussion on the tangible ways to love your neighbor in a divided world. So if you want to show up at 6 p.m., you can ask whatever questions and application to the school to this particular sermon on love and you can just bring it and we'll dialogue and we'll start a journey together and understanding how God wants us to live that out. We've got three of the weeks set aside and we're gonna kind of uh, connect uh, two sermons to, to make some of these work. The week of the 22nd, we'll deal with gender and sexuality. It's all those questions that have to do with practical outworking and that um, will come up that week. And then week 29th will be Jesus and salvation, the exclusivity of Christ and salvation belonging to God. And the last week on April 5th, we'll talk about love of the vulnerable as a wrap-up. So we're going to help start a conversation. We, this is going to be what God says, so it kind of is the last word, but how we live this out, how we learn about how to do this will happen in those conversations. Hope that helps. Um, so let's get into this. Uh, with the beginning, I, I wanted to, I kind of made this up on Thursday, and I, I don't know if I'm going to do it again, but we'll see. We wrote, I didn't, but, but one of the guys in Redemption wrote uh, different, like, kind of statements, definitive statements on our conviction regarding each one of these topics. So I just want to use each week I get together with you to read our kind of statement. You'll see it posted somewhere. Uh, I was just talking to the folks who do that. It'll be posted somewhere on, online for you to, to have and to collect over the next seven weeks. But here's the first one on love. Ready? It'll be up on the screen. You can just follow along. Love is at the center of the universe and at the center of Redemption Church. From eternity past, the one God exists in three persons as an eternal communion of perfect love. Out of the overflow of that love, he created the world we inhabit, such that relationship is woven into the fabric of all that exists. This relational vision of creation implicates our understanding of sin. At the heart of humanity's rebellion, there is a relational discord with God which reverberates to the whole of the universe. Sin is, among other things, the obstruction of love. God's instruction to his covenant people, the law, was designed to teach fallen people how to love. The end or purpose of the law is love. God in Christ does what the law has failed to do, showing us in the, in the flesh what the fulfillment of the law looks like. Love is not merely revealed in ink on a page, but in the person of Jesus. Jesus shows us how love is truth-telling, humble, sacrificial, Considered, hospitable, hostility-absorbing, non-reactive, lower-place-taking, honest, initiative-taking, thoughtful, serving, forgiving, and ultimately substitutionary. Love necessarily spills out into the public life, just as what love looks like when it moves through a society. Where people love their neighbors as themselves, there will be a society that is moving towards justice. Love pursues the other. We must have connection with people who are not like us in order to love like Jesus. Love is not blind. It enables us to take on the perspective of others. Love is not in a hurry. It is pleased to take the time to cultivate relationships rooted in trust and respect. The Lord who is love defines love. If we are to follow Jesus, love is the only way. This relational lens shapes our approach to doctrine and practice as Redemption Church. Like I said, we'll have that in places where you can kind of collect these confessions and these convictions over time, but I want you to specifically turn to a particular passage that lays it out almost word for word in 1 John chapter 4. There's uh, verse 7 to verse 21. It's almost everything you know about what we believe about this subject of love. 
It lays out the fundamentals of love and the shape of our conviction. 1 John 4, verse 7. In this small section, you will see that God's love, that God is love, and that love has eternally existed in the Trinity, and that's a key part of understanding this. That the love of God compelled him to create and then make those he created reflect his love, but sin screwed that up. We all know that. Sin messed that up. And yet God's love superbounded even more because God the Son left heaven and came to the earth to restore back what sin had broken. And therefore, the redeemed live lives of love like Jesus lived. And that's basically, in essence, our confession and our conviction and what John, 1 John talks about. But I, but I thought what I'd do is I would answer questions that I kind of think from the text. There are nine of them. Don't worry, it's not going to go too long. But nine questions in these uh, verses that we need to answer. Here's question number one. Where does love come from? First uh, John 4, 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Two phrases in those two verses that just jump out to me in, in the page. One is God is love, and the other is love is from God. And this might go over your head a little bit if you're not really leaning in closely because there is an intuition, there's an instinct in us based on the culture of our world, Right? People all over the world define God through the lens of the things of behavior or choice that you make that your God is okay with. Love. God's cool with me. That's love. That's how I define God, actually. We go backwards with this. And I said before, even last week, you heard me say it, that this is a classic statement people make. My God would never, which is code for I've made a God that I'm okay with. That's okay with me. What the word said is the opposite of that. Just in these two verses, love doesn't get to define God. God defines love. And I think the world's got that upside down and backwards. That's why you can't just repel something the word says because you determine it isn't loving simply because it doesn't accept your thoughts or your behavior. That's not how you find love. God gets to define it because he's the author of it. So let me, let me try to give even more clarity. What does it mean for God to be love? Because that's what John says here, that God is love. Well, here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that God is just loving. He is that. He does do that. But it's not just how you would normally see. How do you define someone who's loving? By their actions towards you. And you go, well, he's loving because he, he's kind to me. That's not what this is talking about here. When the scriptures teach that God himself is love, it's saying that love, that, that love's source and love's definition is in God. Now, you try to explain this. Um, Orthodox Christianity is the only answer to explain God being the source of love. Trinity, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. All religions around the world, for the most part, if you were just kind of scratch under the surface, all of them have a deity that would say is somewhat loving or loving in some way. Typically in conditions like do these things and you'll be accepted or you'll get this or you'll get that as a kind of a, a reward thing. But... But here you have the source of love being God, and God has to be a trinity in order for us to know love. Let me try to explain. God exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In order to have love, you have to have a relationship. In order to have love, it requires an object. If there was just a solitary God, 
who existed all in time and eternity, there could not be love and there could not be God because the word says that God is love. If God is loving, he has to have some object of his love. Before creation, he has to point it somewhere. Guess where he pointed it? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, mutual affection and love through all time and eternity. Okay? If God wasn't triune, there wouldn't be love. And there wouldn't be God. Do you understand? It absolutely tells you where the source of love is because before, 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 and then some, there was love. In the Father, in the Son, in the Holy Spirit. When God flexed his muscles to create, he created things he could express his love to. That's where love comes from. He is love. He's the nature of love, which explains why there is this deep, restless longing in the human heart, a constant wrestling match for simple reasons, nothing satisfies. It is sort of like you pick up the proverbial writer who says everything's just like a waste of time and chasing after the wind. How could you ever conclude that? (laughs) Well, Every other way to find a source or to solve the problem in the human heart that sin created is a waste of time until it finds its source in the love of God. You understand? There is nothing else. We need God. We need the love of God, and every other substitute will only reveal the lack even more. There will be this deep sense of lostness, and that's why this Christianity, this Orthodox Christianity of God, Father, Son, is the only way to know that love. The effect of the entire trinity is how we get love. We'll explain that in just a minute. The greatest example of love is Jesus. We say that all the time. John 15, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. That's an amazing passage. And I suppose that just kind of should be like, like anchored into our souls. But what's mind-blowing about this gospel we believe in and the cross that we celebrate is that this triune God who existed in perfect harmony and love for all time and eternity, right, sent one of their own to the world not to save friends, but to come after sinners who were shaking their fist at God. Do you understand at that point, like every, every reason why you define love the way you do gets blown into a million pieces because that's not how we love. Love is a, a tit for tat. You give me, I give you. God, in his definition, character of love, came after people who wanted nothing to do with it. And that is the definition of love. Let's answer the next question. How was love shown? It's exactly what I've just been saying. Verses 9 and 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Perhaps you already know this, but sin in, in its essence is a uh, rebellion against God. It's an attempt to get independence from God, to get distance from God, It is to decide my own uh, desires, my own needs, my own wants. I know what I need better than he does, so let me get my space. And here John tells us that God's love was shown in Jesus, the Son, coming into the world, into our mess, coming close to our problems to bridge the gap that sin created between God, a perfect relationship, and us. He came for that. 
to die in our place, the death that we deserve by a rebellion. The Bible says you sin, you die. That's exactly the rules. And there is no pulling back from that. There is no other way. There is just death for sin. Somebody had to die. Jesus did. The word propitiation is just a, another word for a sacrifice that satisfied God's holy standard. Right? Jesus atoned for your sin. Jesus was the perfect sacrifice who could stand in the bullseye of God's wrath against what we've done and bear it and bear it and satisfy God's standard. And here's this wonderful news. What removed mankind from a relationship of love with God, sin, God's love came in the person of Jesus to restore it back before you even had any thought. In the midst of your enmity and war with God, in your desire for autonomy and independence and self-will, he came. That's love. It's the perfect embodiment of love. It's what we confess. John 3, or 1 John 3, 16 says, by this we know love. This is how you know love, that he laid down his life for us. That's it. That's how you're going to know love. <laughs> a righteous one died for guilty ones. That's how you know love. Dying for someone seems noble, but it isn't necessarily rare. Happens all the time, doesn't it? It happens mostly um, when people's heart cares more, uh, cares enough to be willing to lay down their life. I was... I've got another grandchild, a son, coming in a couple weeks, so that'd make five. Like, it feels like in two weeks, but it's been longer than that. Um, but I was holding Hunter, which is Ben and Allie's little boy, and he looks like the reincarnation of Ben. He's like, almost exactly. And uh, I was holding him the other day, and this actually popped in my mind. He's just so innocent, blue eyes, he kills me. So I'm holding him, and I thought, I'd die for you, little man. I, I thought in my head, you know, which you would too. Every parent thinks that thought. Every grandparent thinks that thought. Friends think that thought. So the fact that you would die for something blue-eyed and cute is not noble. <laughs> it's reasonable. <laughs> but that's not how it works with God and you. Paul says in Romans chapter 5, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person someone might even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. You gotta, you gotta remove from your thinking your innocence or your cuteness or whatever else is you're dealing with that makes you think that somehow you're noble enough to rescue. We talked about it last week, and this is the kind of this is the condition without help. We deserve what our sins produce. That's called judgment. But God spite of what we think and what we do and what we fail in constantly, constantly, constantly. He loves his enemy. He loves those at war with him. That's a, that's a much more magnificent picture of love, right? Right? Okay. Let's answer the third question. What does God's love produce? Verse 11 and 12. Beloved, if God so loved us, we, ought to, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Okay, what does John mean? I'll tell you real simply that God's love produces a birthmark on his kids that makes the invisible God visible. 
Can't deny it. You can see it. When Jesus came to this earth, he was God in the flesh, incarnate. He made the invisible God visible. He has ascended. The Holy Spirit has come on his people. His people going about in the world are now making the invisible God visible. There's a birthmark, a conversion mark in our life that when we go out to care for the least of these and love as Christ did, they look at that and go, there's something different there. And they don't know what to call it, but you know what it is. It's God in us. And suddenly these people who have no concept of God see God in the image of your relationship to them. Does that make sense? Text tells us clearly that love is producing in us this wonderful work. And as it goes about its work, it's perfecting his love through us. In, in other words, the more he works in me to love, the more my reflection loves, the more his love is perfected in this world. Right? Okay, let's, let's deal with uh, question number five. Or question number four, I'm sorry. What does God's love encourage? 1 John 4, we're gonna to skip to two verses, 13 and 17. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us, given us of his spirit. Verse 17, by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because he is also, as he is also we, will, we are in this world. Two phrases. By this we know and by this we have confidence. How many of you could use a dose of confidence for your faith? Do you ever walk around staggering with weak knees going, man, I'm not so certain today. I wonder today. You realize that 1 John was written to give you confidence and assurance. Not false hope, real hope. The way he describes it is amazing. God's love gives us his spirit and it's his spirit who confronts the sinner with the good news or the gospel. And you know what the gospel is. It's bad news and good news. Nobody wants to hear that part. The bad news that you are wretched, poor, naked, and dead. And that is how God finds you. And he loves you anyway. And he provides a way out through faith in Christ. The good news comes with bad news. It's the spirit of God who brings that to us. And it's the spirit of God who gives us faith. And it's the Holy Spirit of God that transforms us into a people that love. And when we love, it is a confident sign of life, of new life, when you love like that. This is going to get a little bit more intense as we go through this passage, but you're going to see some markers of the real thing as we go through it. But at least in its simplest form, uh, John has written, I think there's some... 10 or so phrases in here. This is how we know. This is how we know. This is how you can have confidence. This is how you know. The whole point of John is to kind of put faith on God's people so they can see the transformative work of the Holy Spirit working through their life so that they can rest in Jesus. You understand? That's what he promises, a confident assurance. Here's the fifth question. What does love confess? Verses 14 through 16. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to, this, to be Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. Simple confession, church. Simple confession. Jesus as Savior and Son. Son of God, come into the world and Savior of sinners. 
It's our confession in Jesus alone that plants us into the heart of God and God's heart in us. That's what it means to abide in him. That connection. In Christ, we are in God. When we're in God, God is in us, his spirit living in us. Do you understand that? That's what it means to abide in him, to belong to him. Some have confused this language, you know, the language of abiding. as uh, That's the way to describe a more serious student of God. The people who take God uh, more seriously or more maturely, uh, that's what it means when you move down the road a little bit in your faith, you become an abider. Um, That's not at all what John's saying. So just to make sure we clear this up, John is talking about the outcome of the Trinity's work to save sinners, period. The Father before the foundations of the world set his affections on his people. Jesus came to the earth. The Holy Spirit regenerates that heart and gives them a confession they are saved. That's what it means to abide. And let me just tell you, if you don't abide in Christ, you are not saved, no matter what you think. That's our confession. Abiding in Christ is our confession. I also got to say this, because sometimes we get paranoid. I say things so definitively, and you go, oh, oh," you start checking your DNA. Am I a believer or not? But let me tell you, abiding in Christ is not code for sinless life. You understand? Talked about it last week, but there is this regenerated heart that once was dead and blind, that God made alive in Christ, and it wants everything God wants, and it's trapped inside this body of flesh, and they fight with each other every day. So the routine of the Christian life, right, whether you want it or not, is when you fall, and you will fall, you repent, and you get up and you grow, and you repent, and you get up and you grow, and the rest of your ever-living life is that habit. If you ever stop repenting and growing, you should look in the mirror and go, am I, am I? You should. That's the rhythm of the Christian life. The next question is kind of perfect for this discussion on abiding. It is this, question number six, what does love not do? Verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Another word for fear is insecurity. Do you ever feel that? (laughs) It's a pretty common feeling. All that John is saying here is that when the love of God is ripened or maturing in us, it demonstrates the miracle of God has taken place in us, our salvation. That's the proof. As love grows in us, as a testimony of God's love for us, fear of judgment kind of dissipates. You get that? You're loved first, And the reflection of that love in the world means that the fear of where you stand with God slowly gets quieter and quieter. You're not more saved or less saved. You find your assurance in that. Fear is driven out. Do you understand? You should know this, I hope, because I've said it a hundred times, but the father doesn't use fear on his children. He uses another word called conviction. But here's what happens. Sin clouds you from knowing the difference between conviction and judgment. When you walk in rebellion, what happens is your heart feels the same way and you're not certain. You don't get a lot of assurance from your behavior and so you start freaking out when God starts leaning on you about your sin. And all he means it for is to bring you back to your senses and back to your, to your God. But, but what happens? Satan will use it to say, I don't know if you belong to him. Are you really certain you can trust? Maybe you need to get saved all over again. 
Maybe God's not real. And all these kinds of haunting questions. God does not do fear with his kids. He uses conviction. Sin is what blinds the difference. Seventh question. Where is love's motivation? Verse 19. We love because he first loved us. Any questions? I love it when a, when a verse interprets itself. Pretty simple, right? I thought about asking you to raise your hand or stand um, at this moment if you love Jesus, but then I thought again, well, that's just, that's gonna make people feel weird, so I'm not gonna do that. But in your own heart, in your own confession, in the anchor of your soul, I want you to answer that question right now. Do you follow Jesus? Okay. Then please tell me, after experiencing this perfect love that we just talked about, that he took you in and he takes you back time after time after time after time. That he doesn't treat you as your sins deserve and he remembers your sin no more. That he lavishes on you the riches of his kingdom and blesses you with joy and when your heart wants to condemn you, he, he speaks a better word than your heart and he shores you up and holds you up and keeps you in. Then please tell me, why would we have any person or people that we don't love? I don't get it. Why do we see other people's sins so clearly but not our own? Why would we ever have a resentment towards a brother and sister we've refused to fix? How could you ever find bigotry or racism in a church that follows Jesus? I don't get it. Why can't the church love like it's been loved? Let me ask you a question. If God loved you like you love some, would you know his grace or his wrath? Here's another one. Question number eight. What is love's test? Verse 20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Hates, an ongoing state of resentment. Listen, we're all sinners, right? Well, I'm a sinner. Are you a sinner? Okay, come to the table here. We're all sinners. We're all sinners. From time to time, brother and sister, we're going to bump into each other. We will. We'll do something that bothers each other. We'll let somebody down. We'll be rude. It'll happen. That, that's part of it. Um, but what John is saying is that a true believer can't stay that way. The Spirit of God will gnaw on you until you make it right. But if you continually hate your brother or your sister with absolutely no conviction that you should repent, here's what he says. Your confession as a Christian is a lie. I asked you last week what kind of church you wanted to belong to, one that's known for its repentance or one for its judgment. This is where this applies. If we walk small and humble, God would do this work in us to make us a soft-hearted people who are always repenting and always loving and always restoring relationships, right? Isn't that true? 
that that would be the outflow of the work of God in us, that we'd be more suspicious of our own heart and demeanor and intentions than anybody else's because I'm always wondering how the word of God is confronting me. I'm not a victim. I'm not pointing at other people. I'm dealing with me all the time. Let me give you one last question. What is love's command? Verse 21, and this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. I think there's three particular imperatives who basically, it basically says the same thing, the command to love. I, I saw it in your face when I asked you if you love Jesus, if you follow Jesus. I mean, I'm not great at reading faces, but I saw a lot of affirmation that you were like affirmative in that answer, like, yeah, I am. So I, I take that to mean positive things. I need you to look at me for a second, okay? Is there anyone, any person or people, color, stripe, or creed that you're refusing to love? I want the Holy Spirit to put the face in your head. Family member, a friend, somebody or somebody. Anybody in your mind is God pressing it on you right now. You got it? Need more time? List too long? What does God call that? If he commands you, right, to love, and you're not, what does God call that? Yeah. Well, start, disobedience equals sin, right? You're not obeying his command to love, so therefore you're in sin. You agree with that? At least you follow the math. What do you call it? You're justified? You don't realize? I mean, what do you, what do you call it? Because if you still call it okay, if you still call it like there's a reason, if you refuse to see these things as like imperatives without excuse, then you've got a whole list that you just pop through your mind right now that you are in disobedience with. And I'm just telling you, you don't want that. And you don't want to do the math on that. Because John just said, if you refuse, you should question whether you are. So you might go, okay, 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 tap out, I'm done. You got the person in your mind. What do you do? You ready? I'm a simple man, so I'm going to make it real simple. Stop calling it okay. Stop calling it okay if there's a people group or a, a thing in your life or a person in your life that you go, they deserve my disagreement or they deserve my distance. You don't have an excuse. So confess it. You want the other one? This is where it gets harder. Fix it. Fix it. The Bible suggests some timing in how we deal with one another. And it suggests before the sun goes down is really good for your soul. I won't know. But I'm watching your faces and you all have someone. I can see it. So maybe you should just go, okay, God, okay, God, I'm, uncle, I'm gonna deal with that. I'm gonna call it what you call it and stop calling myself a victim. I'm gonna go to them. I'm gonna say, I'm sorry. Do you get it? As far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. Some people are at war with you and you can't fix it. But if you know you resent them, that's what this applies to. Do you understand? Don't you love this stuff? It's awesome. 
Yeah, this is awesome. So good. Warm and fuzzy. Hey, listen, I know this is impossible without the Holy Spirit, but here's the reality. You have the living God empowering your obedience. Do you understand? You are not on your own. This is not self-made. You trust in God. You believe in God. You have faith in God. You ask God for power, and you just move your little feet and watch what he does with it, okay? <laughs> you look really terrified. Let's pray. God, help us. These things are, um, they feel like cramps to us. There's so many things popping through our minds right now, but Lord, I don't know what to do with this passage. You are love, and you've created love in us by the work of the gospel, and so we are to be reflectors of that love to everyone in our world. God, where things look like Mount Everest to us, the insurmountable problems of relationships, God, help us to see it your way. And God, do a miracle of restoration, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.